0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Chuck Collins, Director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good who talks about his new book titled The Wealth Warders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions Tara Huska of the Bear Clan of the Anishinaabe Kuchiching First Nation who examines the epidemic of violence targeting indigenous women, girls and two-spirit people and Peter Cornblue of the National Security Archive who discusses his research revealing the first known CIA assassination plot against Cuba's revolutionary leaders, the 1960 attempt to kill Fidel Castro's brother, Raul. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: Arms sales are big business in our war-torn world. Russia's share of global weapons exports at 21% from 2015 to 2019 is the world's second-largest exporter after the U.S., whose share of the world's arms market grew to 37% in 2021. Five years after its return to the Middle East with a military base in Syria, Russia is moving into weapons markets abandoned by the United States. Moscow's expanding arms sales brings in foreign currency and geopolitical influence as it seeks to challenge U.S. hegemony. Al Jazeera reports that in February, Russia officially announced that Egypt had received five Sukhoi Su-35 advanced fighter aircraft, the first of an order of 24. Egypt ordered the planes despite threats of U.S. sanctions after Washington refused to sell Cairo its fifth-generation F-35 fighter-bomber. Turkey, a NATO ally, is in talks with Russia to buy the Su-35 and eventually the -the state-of-the-art Su-57 fifth-generation combat plane after being shut out of the U.S. program for F-35s. Turkey was hit with U.S. sanctions in December after it purchased Russian S-400 surface-to-air missiles. In an early test of President Joe Biden's infrastructure funding bill, a strong bipartisan majority in the U.S. Senate passed a $35 billion clean water bill. The legislation would upgrade aging water systems and concentrate on underserved areas, including tribal communities. The only senators opposing the measure were GOP right-wingers Ted Cruz and Mike Lee. The bill would double the funding available for removing lead pipes from schools, Lead is linked to brain and neurological damage in children. The legislation, which would also harden water infrastructure to be more resistant to climate change and extreme weather, now goes to the House of Representatives. According to the Grist, the Senate bill grew out of a 2018 study finding that in any given year, 10% of community water systems had health-based violations affecting 45 million people. Moreover, 2 million Americans don't have access to clean drinking water and sanitation systems. In the late 1970s, the federal government paid for 63% of capital spending on water projects. Four years ago, federal funding for water systems fell to just 9%. Worker centers are often the first place that undocumented immigrants go to report and get assistance to recover stolen wages and win back paid overtime. In Minneapolis, building cleaners tired of suffering wage theft under contractors working for big-box stores joined with the Centro de Trabajadores Unidos en la Lucha Worker Center, or CTUL. The center helped organize a direct-action campaign with 600 janitors that included a 12-day hunger strike to win a standardized contract, which, after persistent pressure, was later adopted by Target, Best Buy, and Macy's. According to the American prospect, CTUL built a relationship with SEIU Local 26 to win union recognition and a contract for the 600 immigrant janitors. Later, CTUL and the Minneapolis Building Trades Council agreed to create a new group, the Building Dignity and Respect Standards Council. The council would pressure Twin Cities real estate developers and building contractors to join, a move that would require their members to comply with specific standards on pay, benefits, safety, training, and more. Unfortunately, this example of worker center union cooperation is the exception, not the rule. Indeed, there's a history of often uneasy, even resentful behavior toward each other. Whatever the tensions, many labor experts hailed the Minneapolis-CTUL union joint organizing effort as the nation's most successful episode of such cooperation and a model for the rest of the nation. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manso. <laughs>
0: In testimony before a hearing of the Senate Finance Committee on April 13th, Internal Revenue Service Commissioner Charles Reddick said that the United States is losing approximately $1 trillion in unpaid taxes every year, maintaining that the agency currently lacks the resources to investigate and catch tax cheats. The last official IRS estimate found that, on average, $441 billion in taxes went unpaid every year, between 2011 and 2013. Commissioner Reddig told the senators that these unpaid taxes are primarily the result of deliberate evasion by America's wealthiest citizens and large, profitable corporations. The Biden administration has proposed increasing the IRS budget by 10.4% in order to hire the staff needed to better monitor and audit the tax returns of high-income individuals and corporations. Your reporter spoke with Chuck Collins, director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies. Here he talks about his new book titled The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions, which outlines the loopholes and other schemes used by the rich to avoid paying their taxes while offering policy solutions to recover lost revenue.
2: At the global level, the estimate is that there's some as much as thirty six trillion dollars hidden in offshore tax havens, trusts, shell companies, uh, by the wealthiest people in the world, and what they call the ultra high net worth folks, the people with thirty million dollars or more. Uh, and in the u s it's you know it's pretty acute. there's we're kind of now the one of the global centers for people bringing their money not just wealthy people from the U.S., but from around the world bring their wealth here. But the real problem, Scott, is you know when wealthy people don't pay their fair share, then it shifts the bill to everybody else. And even during the pandemic, we're seeing more and more wealthy people moving their money into trusts and kind of slipping it into the shadows uh, so that the rest of us are going to have to pick up the cost of the pandemic recovery. Uh, so that's the biggest problem.
0: How does tax avoidance directly or indirectly contribute to inequality, rising inequality here in the U.S.?
2: Well, one way to think about it is to compare it, you know, the 30 years after World War II, when, when wealthy people paid a much higher percentage of their income and wealth in taxes. And we used that revenue to make investments in infrastructure and affordable housing and access to education uh, that built, helped build a middle class, particularly a white middle class, uh, which benefited from some of those programs. So, you know, there's there's one model which is wealthy you know, people pay their fair share of taxes and we use that revenue to create an opportunity society so other people can have opportunities, including the opportunity to be rich. And then now we've been living through 40 years of the opposite, which is uh, the middle class is imploding, wages have been flat, more and more people are pushed into kind of, economic precariousness and huge amounts of the income and wealth gains have flowed upward. Uh, so it's really the mere the alternative, really, to a society where people have opportunity and the middle class is growing.
0: Well, Chuck, what are some of the, the solutions you propose in your book? And what is being debated now by the Biden administration in Congress to force the the super wealthy in this country to pay their fair share.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, what we're talking about is incredibly relevant right now. First of all, President Biden has proposed beefing up enforcement on the wealthy. Um so he's proposed an 80 billion dollar investment over the next 10 years to put more uh agents on the beat who understand how these sophisticated tax dodges work. And that's really what's necessary. So that's very much in discussion, and there are bold proposals to restore taxes on the rich, income taxes, and new taxes on wealth, like uh, Senator Warren's wealth tax. Senator Sanders has put forward a fix to the estate tax, which is our inheritance tax. And people always talk about the death tax and how terrible it is. Let's be clear, nobody who has no individual with wealth under $11 million or a couple with less than, at this point, 23 million million will pay the estate tax, and it's become porous and weak. And Sanders has proposed fixing it, and included in his bill are provisions to shut down some of these trusts, some of these loopholes, some of these transactions that, that people use to pretend that they're losing money. Um, So all those things are in motion, currently being debated. Uh, I mentioned the Corporate Transparency Act passed at the end of last year, signed by President Trump. But with broad support from Republicans, law enforcement, pretty big coalition, now we're writing the rules for that Corporate Transparency Act and need to make sure it's got some teeth. But all these things are happening. So the good news is we can fix the system. And uh, if we, the public, continue to advocate and say look to our elected officials, we don't think taxes should be optional for the super rich and they should pay their fair share and we should have a system where everybody plays by the same rules. Uh, Once we do that, once we start to clean up our own US House, then we can join with other countries, pass treaties, um, but even uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said, look, let's create a global corporate minimum income tax of 21 percent. So no, no countries aren't being pitted against each other by corporations and who will who will tax us less. And that's a really positive sign. So we there's a lot of things in motion, Scott, that I think will will if we succeed, we'll shut this hidden wealth system down.
0: That was Chuck Collins a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he directs the program on inequality and the common good. Chuck's newest book is titled The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. Learn more about the laws and mechanisms that enable massive tax evasion by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. May 5th was observed as the National Day of Awareness, for missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people, gay, lesbian, and gender-fluid individuals. Violence against these groups today is reaching epidemic levels in Indian country. On May 6, 11 people locked down in front of a man camp in northern Minnesota, which houses workers on the Line 3 tar sands pipeline being built from Canada, extending across a few miles of North Dakota and Wisconsin, In the entire state of Minnesota. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhus participated in the direct action that shut down the man camp on May 6th. The day before, she spoke with Tara Huska, a member of the Bear Clan of the Anishinaabe Kuchiching First Nation and founder of the GNU Collective, which is fighting the Line 3 pipeline. Here she talks about the urgent need to raise public awareness of the violence targeting indigenous women and girls.
3: There is an epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and two-spirit and girls and also men happening in Indian country. It's been happening for a long time. It's a lot of different things, so at least as as far as I understand it. It's the lack of criminal jurisdiction over Native nations to non-Native offenders. Uh, We were stripped of that right as sovereign nations uh, back in the 50s by the Oliphant decision going through the Supreme Court. So we just simply can't prosecute non-Native offenders like they would be anywhere else. You go into Mississippi, you commit a crime in Mississippi, you're going to get charged by Mississippi, you're going to go through Mississippi court, and you're going to go to Mississippi jail, right, if you are found guilty. That's not how it is in Indian country. Instead, there's this really complicated web of sometimes the feds have jurisdiction, and they oftentimes decline these cases. Uh, The actual prosecution rate coming from the federal government of U.S. attorneys on rape cases, on murder cases, on violent crimes, is incredibly low. They didn't sign up to do that kind of work. You got police officers, tribal officers who are patrolling places that are sometimes the size of almost an entire state, like the state of Rhode Island, and you got two officers on duty, no funding, no evidence to be collected, you know, a victim is brought in and I mean if it's like a two hour, three hour drive, how are you going to be able to really protect that person? So there's that issue. Sex trafficking rings know this. Human trafficking rings know this. Uh, Cartels know this. And pipeline companies and mining companies and extractive industry companies know this also. In relationship to fossil fuels, somebody has to build these things. And it's typically a very large, non-local workforce. So to build Line 3, they need 5,000 people to do it. They said that they were going to hire 75% locals, and their rates are around 30%. Um, almost everyone is coming from somewhere else. The state is full of Texas and Utah plates, um, Precision Pipeline, or whoever the subcontractor is. They're people that come in to destroy places that they don't live in. Um, and with that comes upticks in violence to the community. There's nowhere else to go. We're in rural northern Minnesota. You've got towns of 2,000, 3,000 people, sometimes 200, 300 people. And you got a man camp that's, you know, a thousand people next door. Where are they going to go? They're going to go on the res. They're going to go to these little border towns. Um, And then it becomes compounded with lack of jurisdiction and some of the inabilities of us to prosecute our assailants. And then there's like other issues that also play into those rates. I think the dehumanization of Native people has a large role to play, that we are very heavily fetishized and romanticized. We are Indian maidens who kneel on the side of a butter stick for how many years, how many decades? What does that do to a people when you are a Halloween costume that's very scandalous every year as a race of people, as a living people? There is a a lack of respect for your agency and for your personhood because you are less than and you are an Indian maiden or you are... Not a real person. You're like this relic of the past that kind of got left over. Uh, we are most likely to be killed by police. We are most likely to experience violence or most likely to experience sexual violence. I mean, the rates of Indian women that experience sexual violence in their lifetimes is one in two. It's obscenely high. And there's also, you know, the, the traumas of our own people, which is like intergenerational loss of land, of culture through the forced assimilations and boarding schools. There are so many different issues that have plagued our people, and then we are cut off from our ability to economically provide for ourselves, to govern ourselves, to protect ourselves legally, and then told, you know, (laughs) why are your people still so hurt? Why are you still so poor? Uh, Why are you still so drunk?
0: That was Tara Huska, of Minnesota's GNU Collective. Learn more about the campaign to raise awareness about the epidemic of violence targeting indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. April 17th this year marked the 60th anniversary of the failed U.S.-sponsored invasion on the south coast of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. The ill-fated plan, approved by Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy, enlisted the CIA to recruit and train Cuban exiles to invade the island and overthrow the new revolutionary government led by Fidel Castro. While the CIA is widely known, To have planned multiple assassination attempts against Fidel Castro, both before and after the Bay of Pigs invasion, author and researcher Peter Kornblu recently uncovered the first known CIA plot against Cuba's leaders. Kornblu, director of the Cuba and Chile documentation projects at the National Security Archive, revealed the 1960 plot to murder Fidel Castro's brother Raul Castro who at the time was minister of Cuba's armed forces. Your reporter spoke with Peter Cornblue, who summarizes details of this earliest known CIA assassination attempt in Cuba, followed by many others, which also ended in failure.
4: Well, this was an example of of trying to use history to make history. Raul Castro was stepping down as first secretary of the Cuban Communist Party on the 60th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs. Uh, And uh, I was looking for documents that would be new to people to highlight Bay of Pigs itself. And and of course, uh, Raul Castro, who was stepping down from power in Cuba and leaving uh, the, the revolution behind, if you will, in retirement. And for the first time, Cuba was going to be Governed without a Castro since the revolution So uh, These documents uh, turned out to be In our own collections on, on, on the CIA found by my colleague John Prados They revealed a plot that really hadn't been detailed In its fullest capacity before uh, You know the, the, It was a plot of opportunity That fell into the CIA's hands They had a, an intelligence Asset uh, in Cuba after the revolution Who was a pilot for Cubana Airlines, the national airlines, and he received an assignment to fly a plane to Prague to pick up Raul Castro and his entourage uh, in July of 1960. Uh, and this gave the CIA its first opportunity to do something it wanted to do. It wanted to literally assassinate, terminate, neutralize the entire upper echelon of the Cuban Revolution. They wanted to get Fidel Castro, Raul Castro, and Che Guevara hopefully all together. <laughs> but in this case, the very first opportunity to launch an assassination plot was, was this one. They offered the pilot $10,000 or more in order to arrange a fatal accident uh, with the plane on the way back from, from Prague. And they gave his handler uh, in Havana, uh, an agent uh, uh, named William J. Murray, um, basically 24 hours to convey this offer uh, to the, the pilot that uh, the CIA would pay him money if he could arrange this uh, accident um, and arrange to rescue him if he needed to be rescued. The, the CIA guy hopped into the car with with the pilot uh, as he, as he would drove to the airport to fly off and offered him this money and um, basically made it clear that the CIA wanted to neutralize Raul Castro and what, what could be done, and they, they basically tossed around ideas, according to the declassified top-secret memos, um, on, on what to do, including ditching the plane in the ocean on the way back uh, in a way that somehow might kill Raul Castro but uh, allow the pilot to somehow escape. But he understood that this could be a suicide mission, so he literally asked, you know, if I die – Uh, will the CIA pay for the college education of two sons? And uh, the CIA agent told him, yes, yes, we will. Uh, And that's where it was left. Um, Shortly after the pilot took off of Prague, uh, the kind of uh, wiser minds at the top of the CIA back in Langley headquarters um, uh, decided this was a terrible idea. A bunch of people could be killed they wouldn't get away with it, uh, the whole thing. So they sent another memo, another cable uh, saying, please drop this matter, you know, never mind. Um, but the pilot had already flown off to Prague. There was no way to, it wasn't like this day and age where you have a cell phone or some type of electronic device. There was no way to communicate to him that the agency was no longer interested in this murderous mission. Uh, and uh, But in the end, he, of course, didn't uh, go on a suicide mission. He Raul Castro back and and everybody Was was fine but what we were Left with is this very first Effort by the CIA uh, Failed like all the other Efforts failed Um, The efforts included exploding Seashells and poisoned Hypodermic uh, Laden ballpoint pens And uh, poisoned scuba diving Suits and toxic cigars Um, All those Plots um, against Fidel Castro Failed as well.
0: How many plots were there that we know about in terms of the CIA trying to kill Fidel Castro?
4: So the CIA did its own internal history uh, of the plots really? it had launched to kill Castro. It did this history in uh, 1967, uh, and uh, they counted eight concrete plots. There were a few other plots that, according to the CIA themselves. Didn't focus on actually killing Castro as much as discrediting him or embarrassing him. They developed one plot where they would put a uh, chemical powder in his boots uh, while he was traveling abroad that would make his beard fall out, uh, and so this would somehow vasculate him in the face of the Cuban people and expose him and as a as a as a, as a weak man as opposed to the, the bearded man, the bearded revolutionary that he was. Of course, that plot also failed, as did all of them. And there was another plot that they had to fumigate the radio station where he broadcasted speeches from uh, that would cause disorientation. Um, they claimed that these plots weren't uh, murderous. It's hard to know. Um, but they, they themselves counted eight concrete plots. The Cuban intelligence services um, counted over 600 plots against Fidel Castro. Whether those were all CIA uh, is, is doubtful. Many, many of the exiles of the CIA trained, of course, wanted to kill Fidel on their own, and, and many of them uh, tried. So uh, there were many plots. The one against Raúl was was not really known uh, with the details that the documents have now uh, shared with us. And so it, it got a lot of attention. I, I like to say that you know, it reminded us of this dark baggage of our history with Cuba. Uh, in a way in which we should be talking about leaving that baggage behind and uh, and really going forward uh, in a new way with the the new Biden administration.
0: That was Peter Kornblou, director of the Cuba and Chile documentation projects at the National Security Archive. He's author of The Pinochet File, Bay of Pigs Declassified, and co-author, along with William Leo Grand, of Back Channel to Cuba. Learn more about the history of the CIA's Cuban assassination plots by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFA in Jamestown, New York, KHOI in Ames, Iowa, KRBX in Boise, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Ta. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.